We're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 this morning, if you'll open your Bibles there. And we're going to continue in our study through the Word of God in Revelation chapter 4. Title of the message this morning, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's the title of the message. End of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Get it from that great theological band, R-E-M. Listen, there's a lot of talk about the end of the world. It's sort of a popular subject. What, what happens at the end of the world? What's going to go on? What are the signs that Jesus is coming? And, and all of these things. And, and you know, what we're going to see uh, today, this, this idea, you know, you hear about the apocalypse, movies about the apocalypse. And for the world, the name apocalypse, it's synonymous with chaos and catastrophe and so on. But it actually comes from a Greek word, uh, apocalypsis. Uh, this is where we get the word apocalypse, and it, and it means unveiling or uncovering. It doesn't mean uh, catastrophe and disaster and turmoil, explosions and comets coming from the earth and so on. No, apocalypse means unveiling. It means uncovering. It, it means bringing out into the open. That's what apocalypse means. And the, that's the purpose of this book of Revelation. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's the bringing out into the open his plan for the, for the world, his plan for the church, his plan for you. And what we're going to look at today is just how God reveals his plan here in the book of Revelation. And we're going to deal with today this issue of the rapture, God taking Christians out of the world before all of the events unfold that are so famous in the book of Revelation as God uh, brings judgment to a sinful world. So we're going to be looking at the rapture today. Now as we go through the book of Revelation, as we've already seen, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, Jesus appeared to John and he gave him a vision. And he instructed him to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Now, in that one verse, Jesus there gives us the outline of the entire book of Revelation. He says, first of all, write the things which you have seen. This speaks of the vision that John, or that God gave to John, that Jesus gave to John when he was on the island of Potmos, and that's covered in Revelation chapter 1. So, write the things which you have seen. And, and so, there's chapter 1. Then he says, write the things which are. Jesus is speaking of the state of the church of John's present day. And what we have seen, and that's in in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and having gone through that, what we've seen is that this is both a contemporary picture and a composite picture. Jesus gives John a vision of the church in a contemporary sense, he speaks of seven literal actual churches that existed in John's day. But it also has a composite reality in the sense that as Jesus has words of commendation for these churches, for many of these churches, not all of them, but for many of them words of commendation, and then also words of correction. Again, not all of them receive words of correction, but most of them do. And so he's either commending them or correcting them. And what we see is that in a composite sense, not only was his message to those particular churches, but they were for us today, we, the Church of Jesus Christ, that, Christ that continues 2,000 years now in its course. So the things which you have seen, Revelation chapter 1, the things which are, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and then he says, write about the things which will take place 
after this. This is speaking of the last days. We're going to start looking at that. This is where Jesus now speaking um, and revealing to John, John writing down the words, Revelation chapter 4 and to the rest of the book falls into this third categorical outline that Jesus gave. Hey, the things which will take place after this. Um, And so again, past, present, Now, after this, looking at the future. Now, that phrase, after this, when Jesus says, write about the things which will take place after this. In the Greek, it's called, the the, the phrase is metatauta. And 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 it just means after this, metatauta. Now, here in Revelation chapter 4, the reason I bring that out is because we see Jesus saying in 119, in the outline of the book, write about the things that are going to take place, metatauta, after this. Well, now he uses that phrase again. We see it here in Revelation chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. He says, After these things, metatauta, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must happen or which must take place after this. Metatauta again. So the first thing to notice there. When he's talking about, you know, these things, after these things, you say, well, what are these things? Well, what he's talking about, he's referring to the church. These things of the church, these events of the church. And, and he's been going through this, explaining the different things that are going to take place. Now, what we saw, <clears throat> the last couple of churches we looked at, was the church of Philadelphia, the faithful church. And then we saw the church of the Laodiceans. And the Church of the Laodiceans, the lukewarm church. And so you've got these two churches that are existing in the last days, kind of side by side. You've got those Philadelphia churches that are getting it right and that are following after the Lord. And then you have those lukewarm churches that really are not worshiping the Lord and, and, and are not seeking after the Lord. They are a church, but they are not a saved and sanctified church. And so what we can see there in the, the events that are transpiring in our day and age today, this is a period of time in which we live, where we have the, the, the church, the universal church, but it's divided between those that have a true, saving, sanctifying faith in Jesus Christ and those who pay him lip service but really are not saved nor sanctified. And what's going to happen is, hey, after this, Jesus is saying after the church age, I'm going to yank some of that, the true church out of the way into heaven. But man, that false church that really isn't trusting in me, they're going to remain on the earth along with all of the unrepentant, along with all those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And so this is that point that we're looking at. We're looking at the rapture of the church and we are, we are understanding. And by the way, just let me throw this out. When it comes to the prophetic calendar, there ain't nothing that needs to take place for Jesus Christ to come back. Do you realize that right now, this moment, at this second, Jesus could call us out of here and we're, and, and, and we're raptured? That could happen at any moment, and we're called to live our lives that way. Now, some people get skeptical. They're like, well, gosh, I mean, it's been saying that forever. My grandma used to talk about this. Well, the Bible talks about that. And basically, if I could paraphrase it, the Bible basically says, look, yeah, it's been, it's been prophesied to happen. But just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just means that God's being patient. He doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. 
And so the fact that it hasn't happened shouldn't cause you to say, well, I know, they've been saying that over and over again, the rapture's going to come, it hasn't happened, it ain't going to happen anytime soon. Wrong way of thinking. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows when Jesus is going to say, let's go. And that could happen at any moment. My question for you is, are you ready? Are you ready for that moment? Because it could happen any second. And so what we're looking at here is when that happens, what does it look like? It looks like what we're reading here. And so what's happening, Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is focusing on the church of the earth. And, and as he did, he's focusing on different problems, different personalities, different, different people and characters and so on. And then suddenly we get here to Revelation chapter 4 and everything changes. Everything changes and we find ourselves in heaven with John. 18 times up until this point, 18 times in chapters 1 through 3, we see the word for church used, ecclesia, it means called out ones. And now all of a sudden here in Revelation chapter 4, John gets raptured up to heaven and the church is not mentioned again until the end of the book. And, and everything that we see from here on out, where the church is concerned, we see either happening in heaven, or we see it from a heavenly viewpoint. And, and the church as a whole, not going to be addressed again until Revelation chapter 19, when, when the church, when we, return with Jesus Christ in his second coming. So what happens to the church? Again, we're raptured. Notice what John sees and he hears. First of all, he sees an open door. Take note of that. Come back to that. Secondly, he hears. What does he hear? He hears a voice. Now, the voice that John is referring to here in chapter 4, when he hears this voice, it's the voice of Jesus. This is the voice that John originally heard in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, when Jesus appeared to him. He said, write down the stuff I'm going to tell you. And so this is the same voice. And take note how he describes this voice. How does he describe it? As a trumpet, right? In other words, it's commanding. It's authoritative. It, it, it's like the trumpet that gathered the congregation of Israel together or that gathers an army together for battle. Paul talked about this in the uh, First Corinthians. He said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The, some scientists have calculated that's like one one-hundredth of a second. What's going to happen in one one-hundredth of a second? He says, at the last, here it is, trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. What is the last trumpet? Henry Ironside, in his commentary, he, he talks about the Roman military. And he says, listen, what this is, it's a figure of speech, and it's borrowed from the Roman military. When they would sound the last trumpet, it was that, that command, that, that, that instruction to break camp. And what Paul is saying is, look, when it's time to break camp, Jesus is going to sound that trumpet, and we're going to be raptured. We're going to be taken up into heaven. And so... This is what John hears. He hears Jesus' voice as a trumpet. And what, did he, what is it that he sees? He sees an open door into heaven. Now, here's what you need to understand about that open door. As a matter of fact, you could circle open door nearby. You could write two times that this happens. There are two times that the door of heaven is opened. It's opened, first of all, here in Revelation chapter 4, when the church goes into heaven 
And we don't see that door opened again until Revelation chapter 9 or 19 when the church comes out of heaven to return with Jesus Christ at his second coming. And we're going to get more into that in a minute, talk about Jesus' second coming in a minute. But this description here, the church going into heaven, John described it to, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, but he, he also described it to the Thessalonians. Listen to what Paul, or not John, but Paul, what he, what he said the church would experience. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That phrase, caught up, in the Latin Vulgate, we get the word raptus. This is what we translate into rapture. And so people say, well, you can't find the word rapture in the Bible. Yet you actually can in the Latin Vulgate. This is where it comes from. It's this idea of being caught up together with those that have died in Christ in faith. We're going to be caught up together and to meet the Lord in the air. You see, the, the issue here is that um, there's a difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant. He came to earth to give his life as a ransom for many. After he died on the cross, he ascended into heaven. The Bible says right now he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. So right now, this moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. He's praying for you and me by name. Jesus is praying for you right now. But a time is coming when he will return and he will set up his millennial kingdom here on the earth. Now let me give you the chronology of that. First of all, the rapture comes first. Jesus takes his church out. He, he, it's described as we're caught up together to meet him in the air. This isn't his second coming when he comes to earth. This time he comes, but he, but he just he comes to, you know, it's like your mom and dad coming outside of the house. They come outside the door and they say, let's go, everybody inside. Right? And that's, that's the issue here. Jesus is saying, everybody out of the pool, let's go. And, and, he, ta- and he catches us out and he takes us into heaven. And, and so that's the rapture. Hides us safely in heaven. And then what happens is a seven-year period of time where he pours his wrath out on the earth. Why? Because they have not confessed him as Lord and Savior. They have not done the thing that they need to do to be saved and to be, to be sanctified, to be made holy. They've rejected Jesus Christ. And so what awaits them is, is judgment and God's wrath to be poured out upon them as a penalty for, for the wages of sin, which is death, the Bible says. After this seven years of tribulation, Jesus then returns with the earth at his second coming to set up his millennial kingdom. And, and so this is the chronology. And you see there again in verse 1, he says, After these things, after the church age, hey, a door is open in heaven, and now we hear Jesus' voice saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. After what? After these things come up here? It's after the rapture. Now, what follows then over the course of the next 15 chapters of this book is we're going to see Jesus pour out his wrath. And it is all preceded by Jesus taking his church out of the way, protecting the church from his wrath. Now, there's several examples in the Old Testament 
of this same principle. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. You read in Genesis 18, God's talking to, to Abram or to Abraham, and, and he's telling him, hey, man, I'm going I'm to judge the, the earth. I'm going I'm to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. Now, what follows is Abraham starts bargaining with God. He's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. hold on, God. Now, listen, listen. You, you know, would, would you, are you going to, you're going to kill everybody? What if there's some righteous people in there? Here's the way he puts it. Abraham came near, Genesis 18.23, and he said, speaking of near to God, he says, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? People ask the question today. They say, gosh, why would a good God send people to hell? Listen very carefully. God doesn't send anybody to hell. You send yourself to hell. God has gone to great lengths so that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. His name is Jesus, the Son of God, the the, the second person of the Trinity. God himself became man, lived a sinless life, and he died a substitutionary death. He died on the cross for our sins in our place. And he begs us, God begs us to receive Christ by faith and to receive that work of atonement that he, that he gave for our sins, to receive that by faith. And, and if you'll do that, the Bible promises that you'll be saved. If you reject that, that great work that God has done to redeem you, then there's no hope left for you. And so if you go to hell, you've chosen to go to hell quite literally over the dead body of Jesus Christ. And so, so, so Abraham here, with this same principle, oh gosh, why would a good God, you know, send, you know, good people to hell? He's, he's talking to God, he's like, okay, I get there's, there's wicked people, but what if there's good people, would you send them? And, and what follows, he, he's bargaining with God, and he, he starts off, he's like, well, what if I find 50 righteous people? God's like, hey, if you find 50 righteous people, I won't destroy them. And so Abraham says, well, how about four, would you take 40? How about 40? How about, how about 30? How about 10? He go, you know, and, and each time God's like, yeah, you find 30 people, I won't destroy the, the earth. Yeah, you find 10 people, I won't destroy the earth. Well, Abraham searches far and wide. He can't find anybody righteous. Turns out God knows what he's talking about when he says, hey, look, they're all wicked, they're all evil, and my, and my, and my righteous judgment is coming against wickedness. I'm going I'm to take them all out. And Abraham's like, oh, I guess you're right. I can't find anybody righteous. So God, he sends two of his angels down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But before he does, and this is key, he, make, he makes sure that he's going to pull out the righteous. Genesis 19, verses 15 and 16, When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. <coughs> and while he lingered, The men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of the two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. That's the key. And they brought him out and they set him outside the city. God took the righteous out of the way before his wrath fell. Another Old Testament example of the same principle is Noah. Um, Genesis 6, we, we read, The earth was also corrupt, before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God, so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, 
For, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Here again, we see God taking steps to preserve the righteous. What does he do? He tells Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth because of the, the, the sinful wickedness of all mankind. But Noah, build an ark. And I'm going to, and you and your family, everybody righteous, going to go into that ark, your daughters, their sons. And before my wrath falls on earth and I destroy the wicked, I'm going to, I'm going to take you out of the way. In verse 7, we read, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark. He's built the ark, right? He's completed the ark. The rain is starting to fall. The Lord says to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. That's significant. What's significant about the Lord shutting him in? Him shutting him into the ark. Because, listen, it demonstrates the twin truths of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. The twin responsibilities, the the twin truths. Man has responsibility, but God is sovereign. See, Noah and his family, they had to obey God's command to build and to enter the ark. But listen, it was God in his sovereign will who commanded that the ark be built in the first place as the means of deliverance. And it was God who sealed them into the ark. And the picture here, it's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. It's the Old Testament times looking forward to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so what we have in this Old Testament example is, is this picture of Christ, our ark, of salvation. And, and Jesus said this. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here's the application today. The application today is, are you in the ark? Are you ready for Jesus to call the church home into heaven? Are you ready for that great rapture that's going to take place. See, listen, we have to make the choice, just as, just as Noah had to make the choice to obediently respond to God, build the ark, get in it, and have God seal him in it. We have to respond to the work that God has done, and the person of the work of Jesus Christ, and we need to, to, to yield to that. And, and the issue is, is that judgment is coming to a sinful world. God will judge sinful humanity, but the example from God is that he desires that, that, that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And he says, listen, I built the ark. I, I, I died on the cross for your sins in your place, and I, and I stand and I say, hear my voice, respond, receive forgiveness, receive pardon. We have to choose him. Are you in the ark? Today, if, if the Lord raptured his church, and, and I talk to some people, they're like, man, this is, this, this is crazy to think that, that someday is going to come and, and all of a sudden everybody's going to be taken out. What is that? I can't imagine that. Yeah, because it's never, it's never happened, but it's going to happen. If you can accept Genesis 1-1, 
You can accept the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If he can create the heavens and the earth, there is nothing impossible for an all-powerful God. Take it to the bank. He will call his church home. My question for you today is, when the Lord does that, are you going to be with him? Or are you going to be left behind? Listen, there will be people during the tribulation that, that come to saving faith in Christ, but they're going to have to go through the tribulation. That's just a picture of God's mercy. But you do not want to be on this earth during that seven years of tribulation. The Bible makes it clear they will be the times of the greatest anguish, fear, and overwhelming terror that the world has ever known. The unbelieving people who've rejected Christ are at one point going to beg the mountains to fall on them rather than to be subjected to the wrath of God. You do not want to be on the earth during the wrath of God. The question is, are you ready? Have you asked Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Are you trusting in Him in, 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 to save you by, by His grace, through faith, and faith alone, in the work that He's done on the cross? After the flood, the Lord floods the earth, takes Noah out, seals him in. After the flood, a remarkable thing happens. God places a rainbow in the sky. And the rainbow, we're told, is a symbol of his everlasting promise to mankind. He's never going to flood the earth again. And he makes this everlasting promise. Well, it's amazing. We, as we continue in Revelation, we're going, to, we're going to see the picture. That rainbow is a central part of his throne. His covenant with man. The promise that he made. He makes, it, he, he makes this, this everlasting covenant, this everlasting promise of his grace and of his mercy, and there it is, it's around his throne. Revelation 4, verse 2, Immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, John, bless his heart, he's caught up into heaven. Okay, And he's trying to describe God's throne room. Paul, at one point, was, was caught up into the third heaven. And he said, it was so amazing that if I tried to describe it to you, essentially it would be sinful because I couldn't even begin to describe it. Now here, for John to, to attempt to describe it, it's not sinful because Jesus told him to write down the things that he saw. So, so he's doing his best here. But have you ever gone somewhere and you're, and you're trying to explain it to somebody who wasn't there? And, and at some point, you got to finish up and you just say, dude, you just had to be there. Right? And so he's going to try and explain this. We're going to do our best to see it. But what I want you to understand as I go through it, that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ... You will be there. You will see it for yourself. That's the big get. You got to get this. The throne room of heaven, the church, in the presence of God and in his splendor. This, this, is the, this is the hope that we have. You'll be there if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we have to look forward to. Yes, the book of Revelation is scary when we look at all of the judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth and we see a third of the ocean being killed in one fell swoop and we see masses of mankind suffering through disease and pestilence and all of these things. And we won't be there if we place our hope in Jesus Christ. 
Our hope is in what we're going to read. John's saying, man, you just had to be there. Look, let me tell you what it's like. So, so he's, he's trying here to explain it. And, and one of the things, we see this word throne. And it's used seven times in the, in the chapter 4 of Revelation. And so that makes the throne of God the central focus of this chapter. And notice here that the throne is set in heaven. Will you notice that? I saw a throne set in heaven. The idea, it's anchored there. It ain't moving. It's established in heaven. And, and guess what else we see? We see the Lord seated on the throne. And, and I just point that obvious thing out to you because sometimes, who knows, maybe today, we go through things and we feel overwhelmed. Our world is shaken. Our, our life is rocked. And sometimes it feels like there's just nothing stable whatsoever for us to hold on to. And listen, would you just take note The Lord is on the throne. His throne is set, it's established, it's anchored. When I was a kid, I used to go down to the beach uh, where I grew up in Redondo Beach, and there was a a ship, it was called the Dominator. And it had crashed into the rocks at the point of PV there, and we used to look at this big rusted hole of the Dominator crashed in the 50s. If you go there today, like barely any of it's left. But when I was a kid, you could see this big old ship that, you know, the bow of the ship still sitting there, the stern, I don't know what part it was, but it was this, you know, big rusted hole. What happened, this storm blew up and they tried to put, in desperation, I mean, pushed into the rocks, they tried to drop their anchor. But the, the, the ocean floor in that area, it's just all sand. There was just nothing for that anchor to, to, to anchor into, to, to, to grab. And so not being anchored, they were tossed into the, ship, into the, to the rocks and, and the ship was destroyed. All was lost. Jesus' throne is anchored. And if you anchor your life in the throne of Jesus Christ, I don't care how crazy your life gets, it's set in heaven. And so we see Jesus sitting on the throne. He who sat there, we're told, was like a jasper and a sardius stone. Now, again, John is saying it's like this. Why? Well, because he's trying to describe something that's indescribable. And so he uses just the things that he's seen in earth to try to describe this heavenly thing. And so he starts off, it was like a jasper stone. Now a jasper stone is what we would call a diamond. And so it's it's clear, it's it's got all these multiple facets, it's brilliant, it's white, you know, in in appearance. And and then he he also describes this sardius stone, which which we would call a ruby that's blood red in in color. Now, the book of Revelation uses a lot of symbolic knowledge, so we need to understand the symbolism attached to it. And there's several different aspects of these stones, several symbols that these stones represent. The first one, (coughs) the white jasper stone, symbolizes the glory, the holiness, the purity of the Lord. And of course, the, the red sardius stone symbolizes His shed blood. For our sins, we're going to partake of communion today, and and the cup the represents His shed blood, this this deep red in appearance, and so that's that's the first image there. The second image of this, the white stone symbolizes the grace and the goodness of God, whereas the red stone symbolizes His coming judgment and and the punishment of sin, the wrath that's going to be. Out. So all at once we have the goodness, holiness, purity, and, 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 and grace and goodness of God, but, but it's tempered with, with, his, with his wrath and, and his judgment of sin. 
Well, thirdly, uh, another example and significance of these stones, and I love this example. This is just amazing. They match these stones that when John says it, it appeared uh, as, as, the, as the white jasper and as the red sardius stone, they, those stones match the first and the last stones that the high priest would wear on his breastplate. And that first stone that he would wear, that white jasper stone, it was to symbolize Reuben, the firstborn son, whose name meant, behold a son. And, and then the last stone symbolized Benjamin. And, and Benjamin was the lastborn son. His name means son of my right hand. And so the picture here is that Jesus, the son of God, the first and the last, seated at God's right hand. Just this amazing picture of the Lord. And, and what else do we see? We see this rainbow set around his throne, this covenant that he's made with you and me. It's so precious to him, it becomes the central image of his throne. Now, we continue in verse 4, and we read, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, <coughs> and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, there's lots of speculation about who these elders are, what, what are the, each two sets of 12, what does that represent, and there's, there's a lot of speculation, and, and I don't have time to go through it all, I'm just going to tell you what I think it is. Um, I, I think that it's likely that this is representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And, and what we have here is that we have um, the, every nation, tongue, tribe represented, that these are, the, these are the, the, the heads of every nation, tongue, and tribe of believers in Jesus Christ. And so these are the thrones, these are the leaders represented on the thrones, and by them, through them, all of us, are represented. We there in the presence of God, in the throne room of God, having been raptured into heaven in a place to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now we see them wearing white robes and wearing gold crowns. This is the Stephanus, the victor's crown that they're wearing that, that is promised to, to the overcomer, the one that, that competes and wins. Now this is consistent with the promises that Jesus gave to the various churches that we saw in chapters 2 and 3 as he's talking to those churches when he says, look, if you endure, he promised these things. He promised white garments to the believers in Sardis. He, he, he counseled the Laodiceans, hey, buy white garments. That you can be clothed. He, we see the church in Revelation 19, when we see the church um, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, they are clothed in white. And as well, Jesus promised gold crowns to the believers in Smyrna. Again, if they overcame, if they endured. And so again, the 24 thrones, they symbolize the raptured, glorified, coronated church. 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, Jews and Gentiles alike, every nation, every tongue, every tribe, those that have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be saved. Are you going to be among them is my question. You're going to be among them. And are you looking forward to that day? And what we see here, we see it both here in Revelation chapter 4, we'll see it again in, in Revelation chapter 5, that these, these 12 tribes, these 12 apostles, these Jews, these Gentiles, this entire church, what do they do? They sing the song of redemption. 
I'll put it on the screen for you. Revelation 5, 9. Here's their song in the next chapter. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of, here it is, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And I want you also to note that these thrones symbolize the fact, listen, that we will rule with Jesus Christ. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, they are seated on thrones. In God's throne room, we will rule with Jesus Christ. Listen to this promise in Colossians chapter 3. It says, if then you were raised with Christ. And that's not if then, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. This is written to believers who've placed their faith in the Lord. And in the Greek, it's, it's uh, if then and you are. It's a certainty. In other words, since you've been raised with Christ, here's the promise. If then you were raised with Christ, since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And what's your future hope? He says it. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. But there in Revelation chapter 4, we continue in verse 5. And we read, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the Lord, which are the seven spirits of God. We've looked at this. This is the, this is the Holy Spirit there. And, and the seven spirits of God, it speaks of the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding and the spirit of counsel and the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of reverence and the spirit of deity. And listen, it speaks of the spirit of strength. Jesus said in Acts uh, chapter 1, and told his disciples that they're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he says power, it's this, this word dunamis. We get the word dynamite from that. And this is what we see here. We see the manifestation of God's power at God's throne. And this is the precursor of his judgment that's going to be poured out. So we in heaven, we're worshiping God and we are seeing the magnificent one, the one who died to save our sins, the one who is loving and merciful, but the one who must judge sin and the one who's powerful to judge sin. His wrath is a fearsome thing. And so we continue... Verse 6, it says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, one of the things we discover as we look at the throne room is that a lot of the things that we see in the throne room of God, we see its complement in the tabernacle of Israel. And so the furniture within the tabernacle corresponds, it seems, to specific things that we see in the throne room of God. And so as he describes this sea of glass, it corresponds to the furniture in the tabernacle, a very particular piece of furniture, the the bronze laver. And the bronze laver was there in the tabernacle. This is where the priest would come and they would wash their hands to become ceremonially clean to approach the throne. The picture is of a washing with water by the word. And so what we have here in the throne of God is the word of God, this sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, we continue, it says, and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And he's going to go on to describe these living creatures. These are are what are known as cherubim. And it's just a trip to to read. You're like full of eyes in front and in back. And it's it's just kind of weird. 
Uh, it goes on, he says, The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four <coughs> living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. As I said, these are cherubim. And cherubim are these, are these powerful, angelic beings that God has created. We see cherubim, just as a little trivia here, we see cherubim being those, those angelic beings that God assigned to guard the Garden of, uh, of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, and he banished them out of the garden, and he set a guard at the, the, the tree of, uh, of life, and, and he set that guard so that Adam and Eve couldn't come back into the garden, they were cherubim. Satan was a cherubim. And, and somehow, these, they're, they're central to the worship of God in heaven, and, and they're, they're instrumental as part of God's war machine as well as he makes war against the forces of, of Satan. And so just this incredible thing. Now, they represent all creation. That's kind of shorthand here as you see the faces that are these living creatures. They represent all of creation. Uh, face like a lion, face like a calf, face, face like a man, like an eagle. Just these you know, majestic aspects of creation. And the point is, is that they represent all of God's creation. And what is all of God's creation doing here? worshiping God. All of God's creation is worshiping God. See, they've got eyes all over the place. And, and the significance here is that they're not blind robots, but rather they see and they understand exactly who God is. In Romans chapter 8, we read that God's creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. It's been said that failure to worship is rooted in a lack of seeing and understanding. And what happens, is when, you, when, you, when you don't see, when you don't understand, when you're disconnected, just to get, I mean, worship is an entire life, but I just want you to think about it in terms of when we here on Sunday, when we worship the Lord, if you don't see God, if you don't understand God, then what happens here is just emptiness. It's just, you know, maybe you recognize the tune and you sing the words but your heart isn't in it. But conversely, what happens when you see and when you understand and when your heart is, is profoundly connected to the person and the work of Jesus Christ? And you, in a time of worship, you begin to appreciate, I deserve hell. He gave me heaven. I deserve judgment, and he took the penalty. And when you begin to see that, and then what happens is this natural outflowing of just worship and tears and, and the, the heart's connection to it. And so what we see here is that these cherubim, they, all of God's creation, they see, they understand exactly who God is. And, and so they have eyes intently looking to God, and they see the, re, the, the realization of their hope. Again, Romans chapter 8. God's creation looks forward to the day when it will 
listen, join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. That's what chapter 4 is. It's us, this glorious freedom that we have from death and decay. We've been raptured. We've been taken up into the throne room of God. And the cherubim here, they look forward to this day. And now all of a sudden they realize this is the realization of this hope. And what's their response? They cry, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And what does this perpetuate? Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, we do too. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Listen, there is just this incredible response. And I call your attention back to Colossians chapter 3. We'll put that back up on the screen for you. I'm going to close here. Because right now the application of, look, we're looking at a church that's raptured. We're looking at a church that God takes out and then he, ta- he removes out of the way. He's going to pour his wrath out upon mankind. This is our future and our hope if we trust in the Lord. But what do we do right now? We can't just go, okay, great, that's where I'm at, and now I'm just going to sit on the couch and eat bonbons. No, what has got to be our hope? What has got to be our attitude? What has got to be what we do from here as we look at this? Look at Colossians chapter 3. If then, since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. See it here. See what your future is. Set your minds on things above. Don't be concerned setting your mind on the stuff that there's wrath is going to be poured out upon. Don't let that be the thing that causes you to gravitate towards this stuff. This stuff is, is, it, this is, the, this stuff is going down. It's going to burn. You, you set your mind on the eternal, on, the, on heaven. And listen, I, I, the language fails to see what heaven is really going to be like. We go, well, okay, whatever. That, I mean, okay. That we're going to be worshiping God like it's like it's worship for all of eternity. Isn't that going to get old? Isn't that going to be boring? Look, the Bible says that in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know what that is. But listen, when we read this about living creatures, the emphasis there as you start to study living creatures in the original language, it's life is the central thing. It's, it, Jesus said, I, I have come that they might have life and that more abundantly. And so what awaits us is an abundant life that we have no idea what it's going to be. But what Paul is saying here to the Colossians is, man, set your mind on that. Don't set your mind on the, on the garbage here. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hey, listen, when Christ who is our life appears, get up here. Everybody out of the pool? Then you also will appear with him in glory. That word appear, it means to make actual. It means to realize. There's a day coming when your faith and my faith is going to be realized. When Christ is going to return for his church. And it could happen today. It could. Are you ready?